Dedication and Leadership, Chapter 6. The Formation Process. It is in the study group that communist leaders are formed. There, the potentialities of the individual are discovered, drawn out, and canalized. Part of the secret of the communists' success in what they call Marxist education and what their opponents call indoctrination lies in the actual methods which they employ. It goes without saying that some of the communist instruction is achieved by means of lecture series of the conventional type, where the lecturer talks for perhaps 45 minutes or an hour, and then takes questions from the audience. This method they would normally regard as suitable only for preparing the way for more intensive study by their members or, alter alternatively, as a method of mass education. When they want to get their ideas across to a group of their own members as a means of making these into cadres or of improving the quality of existing cadres, they use different methods. Through small study groups, they aim first to teach Marxism, second to equip those who attend them to go into effective action for the cause, third in the process of teaching them to contribute to their training as leaders. If these aims are to be achieved, it is important that the tutor should have them firmly fixed in his mind, both when he is preparing for and conducting a class. Each tutor is expected, as he prepares his notes, to ask himself the question, Education for what? This is a question which Catholic and other educators might well regularly ask themselves as well. Too often the purpose is lost sight of, and we then have a situation where priests, nuns, and teaching brothers who years earlier followed their vocation believing that this called for total dedication, get so caught up in the job of teaching that, that the original purpose recedes into the background, and they begin to measure success only in terms of academic achievements, achievements which, incidentally, could almost certainly be those of lay teachers. This is not only a waste of priests and religion, it is also a waste of of opportunities. But the communist tutor is expected to remind himself over and over and over again that he is not just concerned with passing on knowledge to people. His aim is to equip them for action and to assist them to become leaders. His aim is to equip them for action and to assist them in becoming leaders. The subject being taught and the existing level of understanding of those attending the classes will determine which of a number of methods the tutor should use. The three most typical are, first, lecture followed by questions, discussions, or both, second, controlled discussion, and third, question and answer method. Of the three, number two, that is the second, controlled discussion, is the one which is regarded as the most useful, where circumstances are right. It is when this method is used that the aim of developing qualities of leadership and drawing out the potentialities of those attending the class is most likely to be realized. From the tutor's point of view, this is the most difficult. These are the lines it normally follows. 
Ideally, the number of people taking the course should not be less than three or four, nor more than 14 or 15, since the aim will be to involve everyone in the discussion. Too small a number will obviously lead to too narrow an exchange of ideas. If too many are present, then the naturally silent ones will remain silent. It will be impossible to bring everyone into the discussion. Immense attention has to be paid to details. For example, even the way in which those present are seated is important. Ideally, they should be in a circle around the tutor in a relaxed, informal, yet serious atmosphere. The tutor does not follow the conventional practice of delivering a lecture and then taking questions. His success may, to a very great extent, be measured by the extent to which he is able to get those present to do the talking and to say what he would have said had he been giving them a lecture. By way of preparation, class members will have been given in advance a list of necessary reading. It is recognized that those who go to such classes are likely to be busy people who will be coming to learn at the end of a hard working day. They are also, in most cases, partly activists. Clearly, the time available to them for reading is limited. Any reading done can only be at the expense of some other form of communist activity. Therefore, the necessary reading is cut to a minimum. Chapter 1 of the Communist Manifesto, perhaps eight or nine pages of Wage, Labor, and Capital, a few pages of a recently published pamphlet, maybe a chapter or two of a book by Lenin. The selection is made with great care by the party headquarters education department. This serves a double purpose. The class member will be far more likely to do all that is required if not too much is asked of him. But also, he will be conscious of the fact that someone else who prepared the syllabus has given a lot of time and thought to the job of trying to save him time. The student, therefore, feels a link with the unnamed people in the party education department who prepared the syllabus. He is likely to tell himself that they understand the problems of people like him. In due course, when the classes get underway, he will quickly learn that the necessary reading really is necessary. Without it, he will be unable to understand fully the line the discussion takes. The tutor prepares himself for the discussion as though he was going to give a lecture. In other words, he prepares the logical framework of the lecture, limiting himself to perhaps three main points for which he hopes to gain acceptance, but he will set out so to lead and control the discussion as to get every member of the class talking on each of his three or two points. He then makes the opening statement. In this, he briefly outlines a subject which will be discussed at this particular session. Putting into rather less words the outline already committed and contained in the printed syllabus, which everyone present has already studied. This opening statement will probably last not more than four or five minutes, ten minutes at the most. Then he will break off and set about the task of trying to get everyone talking.
In such a group, almost invariably, there will be someone to whom all too obviously talking is no difficulty. Later on, he will probably have to be silenced. Otherwise, he will dominate the discussion and be defensive about it when it is noted. But in the opening stages, this individual is immensely useful. The tutor turns to him and says, Well, comrade, what are your views on the point I have just made? The incurable talker starts talking. It is almost immaterial whether he is saying what the tutor wants ultimately to have said or whether he is saying its opposite. When he has talked for long enough, the tutor, who has been watching the faces of the others, has probably already seen that someone else is itching to come into the discussion, either to take up one of his own points or possibly to disagree with something that the talker is saying. The tutor brings number two, student number two, in. And so he continues, switching from one to the other, putting in a word here and there of his own in order to unobtrusively direct the discussion in a way that will actually stay focused on the syllabus. But as almost any such group contains at least one incurable talker, so it is likely also to include at least one silent member. He is the sort of man who finds it difficult to talk in front of others. This does not necessarily mean that he does not think, or for that matter, that he is incapable of deep thought. In practice, the talker is frequently a more facile thinker than the silent member. But the tutor's aim is to get everyone talking, including the silent ones. This is not just as an exercise in ingenuity. The purpose is to develop everyone present, and this can only be done by making them articulate aloud. And so, sooner or later, the tutor must set out deliberately to bring the silent one in. If he is anything of a psychologist at all, he will know that if he shoots a direct question at such a person, he will almost certainly send him further into himself and strike him or her dumb. He therefore quietly and casually turns to him and asks whether, since he alone has not yet expressed a point of view, he has some doubts or difficulties. If so, if he would care to put these before the group, perhaps they might be able to help him overcome them. If he in fact, has no doubts or difficulties, the matter is soon cleared up. But let us take the case of a man who has. The tutor's approach to his silence serves a treble purpose. The member is made to feel that any doubts he has may be overcome, that the mere fact that he has them is, as it were, due to some shortcoming on his part which he will want to rectify, and that the others are all anxious to help him in this. The rest of the group, for their part, have now collectively arrived at some agreed point, apparently on the basis of their own discussion and of their own volition. 
They are eager to seize this first opportunity of converting someone else to their newfound point of view. Everyone present, it seems, is anxious to help him with his difficulties. This is an atmosphere to which he is likely, that is, the introvert or the the new student or the shy one, this is an atmosphere to which he is likely to respond and perhaps react. Before long, he is feeling that his failure to go along with the others is perhaps due to some fault in himself, some inability to see the obvious. And so he takes a new and more critical approach to his own point of view, which in all probability he revises. Everyone is delighted when together they have got him past his difficulty, and the group can then move on to discussion of the next major point. Except in the case of someone who is clearly so hostile, cantankerous, or uncooperative, that there is no possible hope of his being persuaded, the tutor will not normally move on to discussion of the second point he wants them to accept until all have collectively and individually accepted the first point. The value of this method is that the ideas do not appear to come from the tutor, but from the class members who do not feel that he is imposing his ideas upon them. Rather, they feel that they are arriving at these conclusions as individuals, and perhaps to a lesser extent, looking to their peers as sources. This is politically important. Others may talk of communist indoctrination. Those who have been taught by this method are likely angrily to reject such a description of their instruction. They will feel even more strongly when their opponents describe this as brainwashing. Anti-communist propaganda, which describes them as dupes of Moscow, will seem to them to be quite transparently malicious and untruthful. Over and over again, in the Communist Party, it is said with the deepest conviction that nowhere on earth is there more discussion than in the Communist Party. It is said with pride and in the belief that it is the ultimate and incontrovertible refutation of all such charges made by their opponents. It is certainly the case that the average communist comes away from a class at which the controlled discussion method has been used, feeling that the views which they have all accepted that evening are the sort that any reasonable group of people might be expected to adopt once their minds were cleared of prejudice and propaganda. Individually, each member feels that the point of view which has been accepted is his own, has sprung from his own pre-existing convictions. He helped to think it out. He contributed to discussion and by his own efforts and those of others arrived at it only after all preconceived and false ideas have been cleared out of the way. Henceforth, it will be his and he will defend it as his own. The second most favored tutorial method used by the communists in the question and answer method, which bears a close similarity to the first, is this. It requires, much like the first, that they do the necessary reading. 
Those who fail to do the necessary reading before the first session are quickly put on the spot by the method used. When questions are asked by the tutor and others present begin to come up with the right answers, he is left bewildered and far behind. Normally, no one will censure him for this, but he will leave in a self-critical mood, somewhat chastened by his inability to show up well and determined that he will put in the relatively short but necessary time required for the reading, which has, in any case, already been so thoughtfully reduced to a minimum by the comrades at headquarters. No matter which method may be used, the tutor, like the taught, is given maximum help by those who direct this branch of the party's work. The member has his syllabus. The tutor has his tutor's guide, which has been specially prepared by the syllabus he is taking. The party explains the question and answer method in one such guide as follows. The classes should stimulate those attending to further study, both of the syllabus and of books dealing in greater detail with the questions raised. Classes should be regarded primarily as discussions serving these aims. Below, further, therefore, there is an outline for tutors aimed at helping them to take the classes on the basis of the question and answer method. Questions to be posed for discussion by tutors at classes are suggested, sometimes mandated. Tutors can, of course, add others or prepare a totally different set of questions. They should use these sessions and sections of sessions of the syllabus as material on which to base their replies. Then, underlined, it continues, it is of the greatest importance that tutors prepare the main lines of their reply beforehand and not simply content themselves with posing the question. A model opening for classes based on a syllabus on fundamental principles of Marxism is given in the tutor's guide for this series. I don't have that. First, he should explain the method thus. We are going to use the question and answer method. This involves the tutor asking a question or questions around some major aspect of the problems dealt with in the syllabus. Then, after discussion on this is concluded, the tutor sums up on this point. He then proceeds to the next problem in the same way. To be successful, this method requires maximum cooperation on the part of all comrades attending the class. Therefore, all comrades present are asked to participate as much as possible. Next, he moves on to outlining the ground that is to be covered during the particular session. The class members have been told that the syllabi which they have already been given should be studied both before and after classes and that the tutor will not necessarily try to deal with everything they contain. And so he continues, Tonight we will deal with problems arising from session one of the syllabus, historical materialism. We will be discussing mainly our view of historical development. What is the basis of human society? What makes society change? How classes arose? And what caused the class struggle? The Marxist view of social development is the application of human history of the Marxist view of the world and of nature. We call this view dialectical materialism.
materialism, which is the essence of Marxist philosophy. We begin, therefore, with a short discussion on some of the principles of Marxist philosophy. That is all. From there he moves straight on to the questions. The first suggested in the tutor's guide is, quote, What is philosophy? And then, as subsidiaries, what do we mean by materialism and idealism in philosophy? And why do we call Marxist philosophy dialectical materialism? And then, what are some aspects of the dialectical method? Very few, if any, of those attending the class will have any previous experience of philosophy. It is obvious, therefore, that they will be unable to answer such questions unless they have done the suggested reading. But if, on the contrary, they have done their little bit of homework well, then they will feel very proud and perhaps somewhat superior when they come up with the correct answers. After all, ordinary mortals rarely have even the first clue to what is dialectical materialism. Even to be able to, with any justification at all, call oneself a dialectical materialist is to appear to become part of an intellectual elite, a cadre. And so the questions go on. It is all very basic, but immensely important in the making of a communist leader. Terms are defined at every point, but the definitions given to ordinary terms are the communists' own not those normally accepted by others. Henceforth, as a consequence, the instructed communist has his own private language. When he does his propaganda, he uses words with which his hearers are already familiar. But as he utters them, or writes them, they mean one thing to him, and something quite different to the non-communists who receive them. A good example of this is a series of questions which the tutor is recommended to ask at the end of this first session on fundamental principles of Marxism. They go like this. What is a class? When did classes arise? What is the class struggle? What is the basis for the class struggle? What is the revolutionary class? What have been and are the major revolutionary classes in history? By the time all these questions have been satisfactorily answered, those attending the session will have learned quite a lot about Marxism, but not just in a purely theoretical way, but on the basis of examples given out by class members themselves and taken from industrial disputes in which they have been involved. Tenants' agitations which the Communist Party has run, and so on but also a new idea of what constitutes a class will have been accepted. It is such that those who have accepted it will reject automatically as so much hostile propaganda any suggestion that, for example, new classes of haves and have-nots are now emerging or could ever emerge in any circumstances. In Russia or in the other countries, where the Communist Party is now the ruling power. A document prepared by the Party Education Department has this to say about this method. Quote, 
The question and answer method is, in its extreme form, consistent in constructing the whole session around a series of questions. The tutor takes a minimum of time to start off and gives his contribution through his summaries to the answers to the questions. This method is most effective with a really small class, like a branch class of four or five. Once again, the method necessitates an even greater preparation than the straight lecture or the controlled discussion. Then comes the warning. A tutor needs to take great care, first, in getting the right questions, second, to work out the answers to the questions before the class, third, to summarize the discussions using the student's contribution as far as possible. In fact, the education department very conveniently takes care of both the questions and the answers for him. The average tutor is a busy man, and since the teaching of Marxism is surrounded by pitfalls which include the possibility of teaching heresy, he is most likely to take all the questions just as they stand from his tutor's guide, and he is equally likely to take the answers as fact. These are provided for him in the form of references to specific sentences in various communist classics, verses, if you like, chapters and verses, and textbooks which he, as a tutor, will already possess. A lot of thought has gone into both questions and answers. Often, the questions are framed in such a way as almost in passing to undermine the position hitherto held and accepted unquestioningly by the new recruit who has come to the party from some other section of the labor and socialist movement. Typical is the following, taken from a tutor's guide. Tutor introduces, We are going to discuss the question of the state, one of the most important questions, yet one in which there has been great lack of understanding in the British labor movement. End quote. And when he goes straight into a succession of questions, which together present the Marxist definition of the state, which is contrary to that normally accepted by leaders and members of the British labor movement, one has only to outline it to reveal the purely Marxist concept, which is by this means implanted in the mind of the earnest recruit receiving instruction. It goes like this. It is, of course, quite wrong to suppose that the state is neutral, and above classes. The state is, and must always be, so long as classes continue, a weapon of the ruling class. Thus, the capitalist state is organized in the interest of the capitalists as a class. Its task is to maintain and perpetuate capitalist society. This includes all its weapons of persuasion, such as the educational system, the press, the pulpit, broadcasting, and television. Held in reserve, but ever-present, ready for use, are the state's weapons of coercion, which include the judiciary, the police, and in the last resort, the armed forces, all serve the capitalist class by means of the so-called neutral state. It follows from this that it is right and proper that, in the socialist countries where the Communist Party rules, the state serves the new ruling class. This consists of the workers and toilers generally, 
Like the capitalist state, the proletarian state is a weapon of the ruling class. The new one, the proletariat, communists, are doing no more than every ruling class of history has done when they use the educational system, the press, the pulpit, broadcasting and television, the judiciary, the police, and in the last resort, the armed forces in order to perpetuate the existing social system and to crush those who would make an end of it. But there is this difference. All the capitalist can't has been cut out, whereas the capitalists hypocritically teach children in the schools and the public generally that the state is neutral and attack all those who seek to expose this pretense. The communists are open, frank, and honest, declaring for all to hear that the state is a weapon of the ruling class. The poor have come into their own. When at last, with a certain rough justice, the state is, with no apologies, used on their behalf and against their former oppressors. If one assumes that an almost total lack of knowledge of political theory on the part of those who are taught this, and remember that they have gone in receptive mood to learn rather than argue, then one can understand why such basic Marxist theories are accepted as revelations, insights into the world as it really is. The majority doing the course have almost certainly never given very much thought to what consists I'm going to try that again, Kate. The majority during the course have almost certainly never given very much thought to what constitutes a class or what is the nature of the state. But by the time they have finished answering the questions, they will probably have no doubt about either. The definitions which have in any case been given or suggested to them already in the printed syllabus will seem self-evident. In communist countries, particularly in the early days after the communists have seized power, indoctrination may be nakedly coercive. It is often quite openly a brainwashing process. In non-communist countries, it does not look like indoctrination at all. All the emphasis in guides to tutors is upon creating a friendly, cooperative atmosphere. There are no obvious pressures put upon those who take the party's courses. One guide for tutors deals with this under the somewhat quaint heading against bashism as a method of education. This is explained as follows. There is an old diehard theory that the best way to teach children to swim is to throw them into the sea. All the reports of miraculously floating infants are dutifully recorded. There is silence on those who sank. A similar theory once prevailed in certain circles of party tutors that the way to teach people was to bash them, publicly expose their weaknesses, misformulations, and deviations. This may have had a good effect on some hardened characters, but of those who never returned to to be bashed again, there is no record. The passage that follows may surprise those who have learned only of communists and communism from the anti-communist propagandists and who therefore suppose the communists' methods are always and necessarily ruthless and coercive. My own experience is that a kindly and decent attitude to students is one of the first demands on a tutor 
Many comrades find things difficult. Many are diffident, are nervous at first in the field of study. I am for the most cooperative and camaraderie atmosphere, an endeavor to listen patiently to what comrades have to say, even if you feel it is wrong, an effort to pick out from contributions what is good as well as what is bad, and to explain mistakes in the most kindly and helpful manner. In general, there is a very strong case for modesty on the side of tutors who often have less experience than those they are helping to study. Rough treatment should be reserved for those who are arrogant, belligerent, intolerant, and who hog up all of the class discussion. In practice, in non-communist countries, the party has learned that the subtle approach usually achieves far more than all the bashing. In communist hands, the subtle method may take on an almost sinister quality. As ideas which would otherwise be unacceptable or skillfully got into the heads of those who attended the class. Such instruction leads those who are indoctrinated in this way to abandon and repudiate practically all their past thinking and, indeed, to abandon the very things which first brought them to communism. For example, the man who joined because he was at heart a pacifist comes in time quite naturally and logically to accept the need for violence, for civil war and insurrection even though anyone who has experienced civil wars knows that they tend to be much nastier and bloodier even than ordinary imperialist wars. And to sit up till midnight studying linen on the art of insurrection as a means of establishing a system of society in which war will forevermore be impossible. The man with a liberal past comes believing that by joining the Communist Party he is somehow putting himself on the side of liberty, freedom, equality. After attending a few Marxist classes, he has come to realize that these are but bourgeoisie concepts which must be not only abandoned but combated since they are all part of the means by which an inhuman society is made acceptable. In the guise of being tolerant and democratic to those who suffer at its hands, the victims of oppression. And the man who has gone to communism because he has always been on the side of reform and for this reason has supported charitable causes and movements for social reform, is led to a point where he will accept Lenin's dictum that the Marxist is interested in reforms only so far as they may be used as stepping stones to revolution. In the pamphlet, Some Hints for Party Tutors, the following is written. What can be more rewarding to help working-class people to understand in a true way the world about them than helping them to win a working-class outlook and to shed the false ideas and values of monopoly capitalism. The use of these methods of instruction has proved rewarding to the Communist Party 
They stand up to what is the only real test for the communist, the work. They achieve their end. There are lessons to be learned from them by non-communists. One of the most important to those who are themselves concerned with trying to achieve dedication and to produce leaders is that an enormous amount of thought, time, and trouble is put into communist classes by all parties. Both teachers and taught are made to feel that somewhere higher up in the organization are people who care. If the Soviet Union carries through a policy switch, new classes are organized in communist parties all over the world in order to explain it and demonstrate that it grows naturally out of the Marxist-Leninist teachings. The same syllabi are often used, translated into a great variety of different languages in communist parties in scores of different countries. The same tutor's notes are used too. And before long, Moscow's foreign language publishing house is producing some new selection of Lenin's writings to support all this. A fairly recent example was when in all the newly developing countries, an emphasis was to be put on the need for worker-peasant alliances. This was supported by a specially produced, handsomely bound, and low-priced volume composed of carefully selected writings by Lenin on the subject. Many more such examples might be given. We find much the same at the lower, national level as well. A more or less random example may be taken from the Communist Party members' publication World News of September 8, 1962, in which Jack Cohen of the party's education department had an article. The summer holiday season was over, or soon would be, and this meant new opportunities for work by Communist Party members. The party was going to go all out to increase its membership before the next party congress. It was preparing new campaigns against fascism, for peace against Britain's entry into the common market. The writer was, from the Communist Party member's point of view, stating the obvious when he said that all these campaigns would be more effective, quote, if the fundamental social and political factors are constantly explained. And this can only be done effectively on the principles of Marxism-Leninism. More classes with more people attending them were therefore required at once. The coming autumn and winter, he wrote, will be a time of mounting struggle. But in order to be effective, it must also be a time of study. Study of the theoretical principles which guide our day-to-day work in the class struggle, in the fight for peace, democracy, and socialism. The development of Marxist education within the party had been discussed by the executive committee, which had adopted a detailed education plan for the following year, a plan which Jack Cohen went on to explain. Many new classes, which he listed, were to be organized. These were aimed at every category of party worker, from the rawest recruit to the well-instructed cadre. Special material was already being prepared to back them up. There would be simple introductory lectures. The party press would carry regular educational articles of a special interest to our new 
members. All branches would be organizing a wide variety of classes, which would include day and weekend schools on a branch basis. There would also be a national campaign of public lectures, to which our best lecturers and tutors will be allocated, aimed at spreading communist ideas among the general public. A basic aim of education is encouragement of personal study, a practice neglected by too many active comrades on the grounds they have no time. To overcome the mistaken view, we are launching a scheme, especially amongst our newer members, to make available a basic library of Marxist-Leninist books. In addition, a reader's guide to the study of Marxism-Leninism was being made available. This is typical communist thinking and planning. A new political situation, a new campaign, a turn in policy. All these call automatically for more study, directly related to the new development. The communist is a dialectical materialist. He believes that despite the conflict of opposites, he must, in his own life, find a unity of opposites as well. In the work of organization, and in his own personal political life, he must unite the apparent opposites of theory and practice. If he achieves this, then he becomes a fully integrated communist, fully integrated as a person. And the party is only being truly Marxist when its campaigns are backed by study and its studies are linked to campaigns. In an article entitled Studying Marxism-Leninism in the World Marxist Review of December 1964, Sebastian Caldron describes how the illegal Communist Party of Guatemala, of which he was a leader, is organizing the political education, end quote, of its members in underground conditions and in the face of, quote-unquote, police persecution. Classes include ones which deal with the country's economy, history, and class structure. A small handbook has been produced which explains for semi-illiterates the terms they will hear used at their study classes. Pamphlets and syllabi using only the simplest language have been prepared. Activists from the capital have been assigned to, quote-unquote, help with the discussions in the rural branches. The British Party Education Department, not long ago, dealt with this problem of the worker with little education who comes tired at the end of the day to classes and then is told that he must do some basic reading if he is to understand it. It suggested that where possible, one comrade who had a background of better Marxist education should be assigned to help such people. This will be his major party responsibility. He should, if required, be prepared to sit at the side of the tired worker as he reads, explaining sentence by sentence, almost word by word, what is being read. This, it points out, is not an extravagant use of personnel. If at the end of one year's such activity a new Marxist leader has been developed, it has been well worthwhile. It will not, incidentally, be easy to persuade such a worker, if the guide and mentor has done his job properly, that this is some sinister process of brainwashing. On the contrary, his reply when such a charge is made is likely to be, who else? 
In this world ever showed so much interest in helping a poor so-and-so like me. Who else indeed? To understand more fully what all this emphasis upon constant and relevant instruction means in the life of the party, one may legitimately, I think, draw a parallel with the Catholic Church. New policies, new approaches to old questions, some of which to the outsider may look curiously like the somersaults of which the communists were accused, have emerged from the deliberations of the fathers attending the Second Vatican Council. In the main, the laity, and, for that matter, to a somewhat lesser extent, the clergy, have got their knowledge of these things from the secular press. For some, many of the ideas and directives which have come from the council have been bewildering. The obedience of some of the older priests has been sorely tried. The new atmosphere of greater freedom has led to the emergence of what some of the conservative element fearfully regard as a potentially anti-clerical, if not heretical, trend among sections of the educated laity. If the communists were confronted with a similar situation, and if the church was the communist party, then the Catholic hierarchy of any particular country would immediately appoint a commission of the best brains to determine how all this might be explained to the whole of the faithful in their province, providing them the fullest and deepest possible understanding of what was being done and the reasons for it. Then classes would be organized within every organization in the church, with the tutors first doing special courses at which the method of presentation would be discussed, as well as the content of what was going to be taught. Someone would be responsible for listing the required reading, and this would be cut down to an absolute minimum so that it was limited to what was directly relevant to the subjects under discussion. Syllabi would be prepared, printed, and distributed. The study courses would be aimed at every group within the church, from the least educated to the most highly, from the rawest new convert to the professor of theology. When the classes were held, priests would learn how their work would be affected by the various Vatican Council decrees, and how this might be got over to the people through the pulpit in instruction classes, and in normal pastoral activities. Teaching nuns and religious leaders would have their own syllabi and classes at which their work would be reviewed in the light of the new trends and related at every turn to their practical day-to-day -day activities as well as to their devotional life. Members of organizations, for members of the choir, for altar servers, for deacons, they would discuss how their activities would be affected by the changes in the liturgy. Catholic trade unionists and others involved in social action would attend classes at which their role in the new dialogue of the world and the new and better relations with non-Catholic Christians and others would be discussed. Organizations for Catholic students, graduates, intellectuals would have the job of taking a new look at past, present, and future approaches to those amongst whom they worked and with whom they associated so that the latter, too, might play their full and very important part in the dialogue with the world at their own level. 
All this may or may not be practicable. What seems certain is that if it was carried through with any degree of success whatsoever, it would lead only to Catholics being immensely more interested in their Catholicism, far better equipped to apply their Christianity to their daily life in the secular world, and it might well lead to a tremendous renewal of the life of all the people of God who collectively make up the church. The ecclesia is not organized in this way. This is not how Catholics do things. But to note this difference between the church and the Communist Party is to be given just one more insight into why it is that the communists whom Catholics describe as the children of this world so often appear to make a greater impact on our time despite the relative smallness of their numbers and why in the mystification of many Christians they so often are clearly more deeply committed, more single-minded than the Christians themselves. In what we have seen of communist education and tutorial methods, it will be clear that there is much that the non-communist, and particularly the Christian, may not copy. There is much in it that will, quite properly, be an affront to the mind of any Democrat. But there is much, also, from which others might learn. This is particularly true of the communist's attitude to the question of study and formation, and their recognition that those who would serve a cause must establish a unity of theory and practice in their own lives. It is here that the non-communists tend most often to be at their weakest. It is assuredly where the communists have their greatest strength.